Welcome to the Master Passive Income Podcast, where we talk about investing in real estate rental properties with a special focus on making enough money so you can quit your job and live the dream life. And now, here is your host, Dustin Heiner. It is time for the Master Passive Income Show. My name is Dustin Heiner, and I'm here to help you learn how to quit that J-O-B, that just overbroke job, so you never, ever have to work a job again. Now, there's so much to go through in this show because I have interviewed a fantastic investor. She is a fantastic investor at Indianapolis, and she shares so many great insights. So I don't want to take too much time in the intro, but I do want you to text the word rental to 33777. Text that word rental to 33777 and I will give you my free real estate investing course so you can get started, so you can learn how to analyze numbers, how to find properties, how to fund the properties, how to manage the properties, and how to quit your job with these rental properties. That's my ultimate goal is to get you to never have to work that J-O-B ever again. So text the word rental to 33777. Now, I do want to quickly jump in because it's going to be a long episode, but there's so much gold in here. This investor, she is fantastic. She gives us so much great insights and so much great wisdom in how she runs her business. Very, very similar to how I run my business. It's really fantastic. So let's jump into today's show where I interview Sunitha Rao. She is a fantastic investor out of Indianapolis. She shows us how to do it. Okay, guys, let's get in there. I have somebody who's fantastic at rental properties, as well as Airbnb, as well as just being a fantastic person as well. I have Sunitha on with me. Sunitha, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to speak to you today. I remember when we first met, we were at a conference and you came up to me. We just started talking about real estate and you were sharing everything that you were doing inside Indianapolis and basically the the real estate that you're doing because the conference we were at is not necessarily about real estate. It's about just money and, and things like that online. And it's fun when we get to meet people in this space or that that conference where it's just about all money, we get to meet people that are in real estate. So it's really, really great. So tell me a little bit about how you are investing and where you're investing right now. So I am investing in Indianapolis, which is where I currently live. I have seven doors, most of which are long-term rentals. And I recently moved into the short-term rental space with one of those units. I started investing about two years ago. So this is when I was still living in Boston. I grew up on the East Coast and I was working and I'm still working as a financial analyst for a biopharma company. And for a while, I was all about doing everything that I could to climb that corporate ladder, Um, working nights and weekends, sacrificing holidays, like you name it, I did it. (laughs) Um, But after a while, I started to realize, you know, it's not always a meritocracy. And there's there, I was living a life where everything, everything that I cared about came after work. And while that has given me dividends by, by adopting that attitude, it, I also realized it was very constricting. I was faced with these constraints, the two biggest constraints in our lives, which um, are time and money. Like we make the vast majority of our dis- decisions based on our, the constraints we have on our time and what we can afford, right? And my company was just had like this stranglehold on both of those. And that's when I realized, hey, I need to do something different to build a better life. I eventually started looking into different aspects of personal finance and found real estate and just absolutely became enamored with so many aspects of it that I spent two years studying. I was in grad school, so I didn't have any money. Spent two years studying until I could save up a little bit of money. And then in 2018, I made the jump and have been working on investing and growing my portfolio ever since. And I've been 
super committed to doing that to the extent where I actually left Boston, <laughs> left the East Coast where I grew up, a place that I love to move out to Indianapolis so that I could design and build my dream life. Wow, that's awesome. You actually moved so that you could continue and build that business, build that real estate investing. And I love how you, you're gung-ho. I mean, in two years, getting seven properties, not a lot of people can actually say that. Was that a lot of sacrifice? Was that really, really hard? Tell us a little bit about, not necessarily the entire journey, but like, mm-hmm. tell us about the process of getting seven doors in two years. That seems like a lot of work for most people. It, it definitely was a lot of work. But what I love about real estate is that you can front load that work, right? So like, it's a lot, the first property was a lot of work in the first two or three months. Since then, it's been very little. And that goes for each ensuing property. So in terms of getting a lot, a lot of what, um, one of the big constraints in real estate investing is finances. So also educating yourself so that you can figure out how to get more properties because saving strictly based on a W-2 income, that can take a little bit of time. So like learning about seller financing, learning about how to work with other investors, learning about what their needs are, trying to figure out a way to, there's always another way to skin the cat, right? You just have to learn about the different mechanisms in whatever field you choose and use those, use those levers and pull them with the risk tolerance that works for you. Yeah. Now I love, personally love using my own money and using, actually more so, I love using other people's money to buy (laughs) real estate. And the reason why I love using my money is because it's so much quicker and easier and faster. And that's when you have money, but not everybody starts with money. I started with $17,000. That was when I first got married back in 2005, 2006. Don't tell my wife I forgot which year we got got married. Yeah. But um, so we had, she, I didn't save any money. I was never really taught to save. I was told not to get into debt, which was great but I wasn't told to save or taught to save. My wife saved, I think she had maybe about $15,000 that she saved up. Then we got married. And within six months, I said, you know what? I really want to spend every bit of your money that we just got married (laughs) and buy a rental property. So we're really blessed now. Uh, Praise the Lord. We bought that first one and kept just rolling it over and getting the next one and the next one after that. But uh, yeah, utilizing other people's money is is really, really good. But then also, like you said, um, you made a big sack, not necessarily a huge sacrifice in the sense that you moved, but you did something drastic that not many people would do moving from someplace that you know and love and grew up to someplace like Indianapolis. So tell me about that idea that it's it's really good for you and your business to actually move there. What made that decision easier for you to do? The thought of the life that I wanted to live. So my goal is not to is not now is not to climb that corporate ladder for the next 40 years. I want I want to do well, but then be able to transition out and spend time on things that create the most value in my life, whether that's spending time with my loved ones or traveling. I'm I really am passionate about helping people. I would really love to be in the nonprofit world. And staying where I was would not get me to that end goal very quickly. You know, so it's all about what what does your life look like when you have been successfully unemployed and how do you get there more quickly, <laughs> you know, um, and just you have to make those sacrifices sometimes, you know, like if if I was to stay in Boston, that that life would have continued. And I would never have gotten to the point or not for a very long time, gotten to the point where I could truly be successful on my own terms. So it really, it really took time and understanding what that looked like for me in order, in order to build that life. And once I understood 
what that would take, then it's much easier to make those sacrifices because you have that vision in mind and you can, it's much easier to keep working for it when you know what that end goal is and you know how to get there. And so you started with the idea that I want to build my life or my lifestyle or everything around what I want, as opposed to just working that, and I love to call the term your J-O-B, that just overbroke just job. Broke. Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're just overbroke. Your boss is paying you just enough to keep you working, but not too much. It takes money out of their pocket. And so you're just enough and just enough. And, and I got tired of living that way. And as I bought my first property, I started realizing, oh my goodness, because my business model is I make $250 or more on every single property, or I don't buy it, or I you know, negotiate, get the price down, all that sort of stuff. I need to make $250 per property on every single one of my property. And when I first bought that first property, I think I made $350 was my first check that I got in yeah, passive income. So good. Oh my goodness. I was like, how can I get more of these? I mean, right, okay, yeah. one property is 350. If I had 10 properties, that's 3,500. If I have 20, that's 7,000. Oh, it was just the scales. I was like, oh my goodness, how do I do this? I'm going to jump all in. Okay. So what you did something that I didn't do. So I started in California when I started investing in 2006. So I started investing not in California. I was living in California, but I bought in Ohio. So far away. I you were flew a long there. distance I investor too. Yeah. As, yes, absolutely. After flying there, viewing everything, talking to people, I, I didn't do everything wrong, but I didn't do everything right. Like I've so fine-tuned my business model now and how I like a step-by-step system that I have. But from that, um, I was able to buy my first property far, far away. And then I kept buying them far, far away. I didn't actually move to where my properties are. Now, is that something we would necessarily need to do is to live where we are investing? I don't believe so. No. So... I was on a race like to get to that end goal line, right? So you absolutely don't need to. I mean, I think my when people ask me about my favorite investment or my best investment, it's probably the very first purchase I made. I made sight and scene just with a video walkthrough being completely new from a thousand miles away. You know, so it's it's 100% doable. And, and all five doors that I bought that first year when I was still in Boston have all performed so well. Like I cannot complain. People stay there. People take care of the units. It's just been easy, honestly. Um, so it's absolutely not necessary to move to your location. I have found to had to, I have found advantages from being at my location now, but it's it's definitely not a necessity, especially especially if you can stay where you are and there's like and you're able to make a higher income and and dump that into a lower cost location. I would definitely advocate for staying there. You have to look at your whole, the holistic picture. And it's also quality of life, right? Because you were married, you had a family, it's a little bit harder to pick up and move. Whereas I'm just like the solo gypsy running around. So it was very easy <laughs> for me to like pack up my car and be like, later fam. So it's definitely not a necessity, but I would think about what the locals have over you that is advantageous and how you can go about remedying that. So like when I was away, I would make sure to make very, very good relationships with whoever came onto my property, the contractors, et cetera, you know, and then try my best to network to find them other business once they did a good job, you know, because like your reputation can take you really far. So I worked so hard. And you know what I like, I actually still do with my property manager. I think I probably recommended her to you as well. I work so hard to get her business. And even still, even now that I'm here, because you need to be able to figure out how to add value to others. And that is, 
in the end, somehow it comes back to you. And even if you don't see the direct connection, you're, you're doing good for others. And that's, there's nothing better than that. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I found a, a while ago that the more people that I help, the better, not just financially I do, which I do better financially, the more people that I help, but just internally, I just feel better when I'm building somebody up. And that's why like successfully unemployed, I love that podcast. I love everything about it. It's like a passion project of mine because not everybody wants necessarily real estate, which is weird to me or, or us. It's really what? weird, but there are plenty of ways to do it. And so the more people that I help, the more my business gets better, not just monetarily, but I feel better. I learn so many more things. I change the way I do things because there's, I'm, I'm not the end all be all of everything. And so I try to learn from every single person. Okay. So it sounds like to me, I'm a little bit of switch of, of gear. It sounds like you have a good grasp of, not grasp. That's not the right way to say it. It sounds like you can tolerate risk pretty well, like up and leave and, and start, buy seven properties. It and, depends. <laughs> it depends because I mean, my background, my parents are Indian. So like we are very fiscally conservative. Like I don't, my mother doesn't know what I'm doing. I think she might have a heart attack if she knew I was <laughs> buying just house after house. Goodness, you know, so there's definitely some kinds of risk and learning, learning how to mitigate where you fall back in terms of what you need to take on that risk is also like very important. So I, it's taken me two years to get to the point where I would feel comfortable taking on another, taking on an investor, investing someone else's money because I could never sit across the table from someone if like I didn't, if I wasn't able to return their capital or wasn't able to give them their returns. Like I know what it's like to, to struggle monetarily and there's no way I could put anyone in that position. So I know others who've definitely grown faster because they've been able to like syndicate, draw funds, do whatever they need to do to raise the cash and dump it in somewhere. That's not, that's not like a risk I can take. But as long as you know, I learned how to mitigate that. Like, and as long as you know how to do that, it, it'll, it'll be okay in the long run. So yeah, no, I, I agree. And there's two thoughts. One is I want to talk to you about mitigating that risk, which we'll get into in just a second. But the other thought was that as you're buying that first property, which is one of my more favorite properties is the the one that I bought very, very first one. Like that's, right? I love that baby. first one. Yeah, it is. It's like the very first one. It's a success. It's like, it's a huge win. Then literally like by the 28th one, I was like, Hey, I just bought another property. I don't even remember the the address. Like it's, it's going. But um, so, but yeah, as you're building that business and you're you you're trying to mitigate. I love that that idea that when you're trying to mitigate the risk of investing. Now, let's say I wanted to invest in Indianapolis, and I say, you know what, I I really don't want to fly there, but I will if I have to. How do we mitigate risk if we're going to say invest in Indianapolis if we live somewhere completely different? Well, I think first you have to determine what that risk is for yourself. So some people think risk is not getting like as high a cash return. Some people think of risk as like not having appreciation. Like it's just, it depends on what kind of life you're trying to build. For me, risk involves not having stable cash flows, even if I was getting higher cash flows. My end goal was to build a life where I could leave my job and easily support my family and not worry about, hey, I have 16 evictions this month. I can't, I can't pay my bills, you know? So a lot of people will go and buy maybe like lower class assets because those do have higher projected cash returns. But I knew that was not the life that I wanted to build in 10 years. I'm not thinking about right now. I have a job right now. I'm employed right now. 
I want to be successfully unemployed. <laughs> Branding. I'm, I'm going to keep talking yeah. about it as much as I can. I love it. I love it. <laughs> because yeah. I, it's, it's so true, right? So, and so in order to do that, I bought places that would cash flow, but were also in higher class areas. And I'm, I'm not going to lie, that was a hard, hard thing to kind of swallow when I knew that my other friends were getting like, 400 bucks aside on like a $50,000 duplex. And I'm like maybe getting like 150 or so for like both my sides on like the first property, you know, but I was like, this is, this is the path that I need to take. This fits the risk exposure and this will allow me to live that life. So, and when you, I'm a very visual person. I think, I think the visual piece helps a lot, but maybe I'm biased. So when you're talking about like mitigating risk, when I think about my specific type of risk, if I want a good asset that's in a stable area, no crime <laughs> or very, very low crime. Right. And so for that, like I learned pretty early on, like truly a crime maps really works. So like really funny story before I chose to visit, before I chose to um, invest in Indianapolis, I visited Kansas city. And this was before I was really new. This was before I knew about crime maps, before I really knew anything. Right. And we're walking around um, this quadplex and it looks like it's in a decent area. Like the sun's out, it's shining. Like the place looks nice. The numbers are great. We're talking like two and a half percent price to rent ratio. And I'm just like, what, what am I missing? What am I missing? Right. There's something here that I'm missing. We're walking around the backyard. I found casings for bullets. <laughs> and then, and then the city, yeah. yeah, like in that house. And then I went back and I was talking to someone else and someone mentioned the crime maps. And I was like, what on earth is that? Went back to the hotel room, pulled it up. That place, this is when Trulli was still red, yellow, green. That place lit up like a red Christmas Lots of tree. crime. Yeah, just like on that. That was like the worst block. So like for me, for me, it's crime. The other thing is school districts. Equally important. So my first five properties were all purchased in an area that had the best school districts in the greatest greater Indianapolis area. I'm getting more stable tenants. People don't leave. Places get filled up really early. Um, last I love, August. I love renting to families. They're, yes. they're fantastic. Yes. They are. And so like another anecdotal story is last. So I was I bought these to rent to families, right? Last year, I had a property that, that went off market, needed to be fixed up, came back on market a week before school started. And I'm just like, everybody is set. They've already I'm moved not, yet. Yeah. I'm not going to get a renter in. I got a renter in at market price in two days. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So like understanding what, and so if that's not stability and cash flows, I don't know what is. I might be making a little bit less, but I know what I'm making month over month. No one's giving me a problem about paying. It's never been an issue and never in my two years. <laughs> but um, those are two big things that I look at. That's great. I love those. And I definitely a truly a crime map is very, very smart. So what I like to do, and when I mentioned um, you know, the, the, when you said the shell casings, and when I said in the city is because in the city, anywhere in any city, you cannot fire firearms. Like if you're in the rural areas, you know, oh, if you have I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Outside you absolutely like you, uh, if it's county, usually in most states, the county you can have, you can shoot firearms, not like, you know, just go gung ho, but it's not absolutely like against city ordinances. But if you're in the city, almost like literally hundred percent of the cities in America, you cannot shoot firearms or any, like even a um, high powered pellet gun. That's, that could even be considered bad uh, bow and arrow. Like you can't shoot anything that's lethal. And so, okay, yeah, when I said, I was like, 
Yeah, it's yeah. So it's inside the city limits, which is very, very bad. So you're having that. And so for me, when I'm looking at an area of the country, and in fact, all the students that I teach, we look at many different cities. But here's the big thing, because somebody would ask me, what do you think about this city? Or what do you think about that city? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not the expert. We need to hire those experts, like the property managers, the realtors. And here's the biggest thing that I always try to make sure every student realizes that if your property manager will not manage that property because there's high crime, because it's a bad area, don't don't buy that property. You can't manage it. Absolutely. So you're, you're, you're right, right on with that. I love, and also with schools, the, the school district is something that's also, cause like I said, I love I love renting to families, families that parents have solid jobs. They go to a solid school that they really, I wouldn't say they love it, but they're locked in that school. It, it takes a lot for them to up and move their jobs right there. Their work, the school's right there. So I love stable tenants. Now, one thing that you mentioned about possibly getting, not, not, not you, but like you mentioned the thought of like getting, we were talking about leverage and almost getting over leverage or utilizing how some people and you and I are not like that, where we would just grow to like hundred, 200 or 300 units because we're just syndicating, borrowing money and just really getting really highly leveraged. The reason why I did not have any issues when, cause I started investing in 2006 before the crash all through 2007, 2008. And even now prices are pretty high. There will be a correction sometime. The reason why I was totally fine throughout because I invest for cash flow, number one, but number two, I don't go gung ho, like hog wild on getting over leverage. And I was talking to another gentleman. He's an investor. Um, he, in 2008, he literally got destroyed. He had, you know, he was driving a Ferraris, Rolexes, you know, he was, he was high life. And then 2008 hit and everything was gone because he was so highly leveraged. But if we're like, like us, if we invest for cash flow, we don't just crush our, our, our um, getting too much leverage where all of a sudden it gets destroyed and then everything gets taken away. We're smarter because you and I and people like us, we think long term. We're thinking, what is this for our future? Not right now, which right now is great getting extra money from one property, two properties, but it's the long haul. Over 10 years, let's say five to 10 years, in between there, you should have enough properties to be like, man, this is doing great. I could possibly quit my job. Now, I want to ask you about getting to seven properties in one year. Tell us. Oh, how you, I wish it was one year. Years. Okay. <laughs> how did you do that? And getting seven, and these are like probably B-class properties. And those are higher priced properties. How'd you get to that many? Did you get investors? Did you save up a lot of money? Did you refinance? So each one actually had a slightly different tactic, which has been really great for my growth, but it was really stressful trying to figure it out. First one was conventionally financed, put down the 25%. And then um, second one, those were actually, those were two properties. So three doors, two properties, one seller selling both of them and he wanted to get rid of them. Um, and he didn't realize what he had on his hands. I'm not going to lie. Um, Meaning good or bad? Good. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. And then he, he, he made the negotiation process way more difficult and way more drawn out. But I was like, we have this and I am not letting this go. <laughs> So the, the, that bundle, um, I conventionally financed one, 25%. And then the money he got from the bank for the purchase of that acted as like the down payment for the second, because I was very upfront. I was like, I will execute. I will close. I will do what we need to do. I will follow whatever agreement we agree upon, but I do not have the money for the second one. And I don't even have money for cash for the first one, but I keep, I want to keep investing and I'm hoping we can build a relationship through the years and keep 
giving each other business and helping each other make money. So if maybe we can work together on this, I think this will help us both in the long run. Right. So it worked. Um, so he seller financed the second property. So I essentially yes. got into that one for no money and I refinanced I him out. Yes, it was amazing. So got into, at, at that point, that was the five doors, got into that and then refinanced him um, six months later. Then I'd spend all my money. <laughs> so it's been a little bit slower. But um, once I moved to Indianapolis, then I started to house hack and got a house with only 7% down, right? So different kind of loan was great. Got another place for not a ton of money. And then my last door, I used an investor. So I, I've, used a, I've used a combination of seller financing, um, conventional house hacking, as well as investor money. That's, I love, see, I love real estate and I love coaching people because most people think, okay, the, the way to buy or start investing, the way to buy rental properties, I get a mortgage broker and I get a realtor and I put them together and I have a property. That's just one of hundreds of ways to get funding, find properties, run the properties. Like there, there's just so many ways to do it. And you just touched on a few of them that are great, great. And like I said, I love seller financing. It's just so amazing. So good for you. Now from there, I want to talk to you about if I wanted to invest in Indianapolis. Now there are better areas than, than others. There are bad areas. We don't need to get into that because if somebody were to invest, they have to do their own homework to really figure out which ones are good or which ones are bad. But what would you say would be the first, first or second step? Like what, we know Indianapolis, we want to start in, investing there. What's our next step that we got to do? You have to do your research. And I think it helps a lot to have a visual depiction of what you're looking at. So what I did was I got a map of Indianapolis on and I put it in like an Excel document and like had that on, I had like two screens at work. So I had that at one screen and then would do my research on another. And so like, I would look at things like where are the school districts, where are the whole foods, where are the Trader Joe's, where are like, where's all of that happening and put like little pins right? And see if like a pattern would emerge. And then I do the same thing for the bad areas, put like other different kinds of pins, see if I could figure out a cluster and start looking at it that way. And then once I saw that, like, I'd be like, okay, this is what this tells me. So in Indianapolis, it's called the Circle City. There's a highway that goes around um, the center. And so um, all the good school districts that are non-Indianapolis public schools are all like outside the circle outside the loop is what they call them, you know, so I could go into it and then corroborate that with like my property manager, you know, because you can go on bigger pockets, people will say things, but you always have to verify everything because everyone is speaking from a different personal bias. So you like never want to take what someone says, like at full value. It doesn't mean they don't know what they're doing. It just means that they have their own tolerances that they that is coloring their vision. And that might not be your path, right? So that is pausing that thought. So I want you to keep going, but I want to definitely reiterate what you just said. Um, There are many different ways that people invest in real estate. And I would suggest you go with what is the best for your risk tolerance, where you are financially, what your goals are. And what I did was the recent, I'm going to say recently, about two or three years ago, I was like, I want to help more people. So I went on to bigger pockets and I was trying to, you know, get in the forums and um, help people out. They're asking questions like, well, this is what helped me out. And I'll get one person say, Hey, that's a great idea. Thanks for sharing. But then like two or three other people say that guy has no clue what he's doing. He is absolutely wrong. Don't listen to him. Listen to me. I'm like, what in the world? Like, this is my business model. This is what worked for me. Like, where yeah, are you? And exactly. so there's just so many voices that are going into you. You just need to figure out what's best for you. Yeah. And what, what is successfully unemployed for you, right? So exactly. For some, people, for some people that's buying 
300 units in a D-class area and just putting all their money there and then they're so diversified, it doesn't matter if they have 27 evictions in one month. That, that doesn't work for everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out what it looks like for you and whether that fits. I agree. Okay. So from there, we, and I love the idea, we're figuring out what we're doing. Now, what's the next, is it next finding the property or do we got to figure out who's going to actually be running the business? What do we do next? You find your people, the people, your people will make or break your team, your entire investment career. There are, there have been property managers and other people in Indy who have fraud, have, um, engaged in fraudulent activities and completely taken thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars from the investors, you know, so it doesn't matter. You can do all your research. You can make all your maps. You can do all your colors. You can like read until like your eyes fall out. But if you're working with someone who is not trustworthy, you can lose all of it. So verify, network, listen, like our gut instincts know a lot more than we give them credit for. They sure do. I agree. And I think having people who will tell you no and who are who will be honest with that, it takes time to figure out if they're being honest. You kind of have to test them a little bit. They are worth their weight in gold. You know, that's why I love my property manager from the beginning. She was she might not always say no, but she'll be like, okay, I think this needs a higher return. What does that mean, Sunita? That means there's probably higher risk. So you need more money to be compensated for that. Therefore, it's probably not a better area. Therefore, it might not fit my model. Okay, moving on you know, and then also being very clear with them um, sometimes. So like with my agent, I kind of had to train him, you know, so I have this map, right. And so in the circle, in these areas, these areas are safer. My projected cash flow is going to be lower. So here's what my price to rent ratio will be just as like a quick test. If I'm going down into the center, this is what it needs to be. And these are the specs it needs to be at in order for it to make, make in order for me to make it work. So it's learning that getting the evidence from the people around you, getting honest people and then training them to further tease out exactly what you are looking for and exactly what you need to set up that life. Because again, it's not about the success of the investment right now, this year, next year, hopefully it is successful, but it's about building the portfolio that will allow you to live the life that you need to live. I, I love that idea. And as I'm working with my students, what I'm telling them is as many points of information or reference or knowledge that you can get and put in your brain, you need to disseminate that inside your brain. So if you have a contractor there, if you have your property manager, if you have an inspector, even if you have somebody that's just unclogging a leak or something like, or, you know, fixing a leak or unclogging, you want to get as much information as possible. And especially a property manager, not just the information, but trustworthy information. If you have a not so good property manager that doesn't call you back, that isn't on on top of things, that isn't keeping in contact with you, making probably some charges that you're like, man, why did I get charged for this? Or, hey, this wasn't necessary. I would not have approved it. You need to have people that you trust. And so what I- People who are really on top of things. So one thing that I learned is- um, If you're, if your investor, if your property manager is like newer, they need to understand how the money moves. Otherwise, you're not going to get your money. I had to, I had to learn that the hard way by having one of my properties shift to someone I hadn't chosen. And it was really hard for me to get my money because he did not understand the full dynamic. So you need someone who can, who knows it like the back of their hand. I don't believe in taking a chance in someone new, even if it's for, even if it's, if it's at a cheaper rate, because you will pay for that. 
one way you or another. You are 100% right. I don't, I don't want to pay for somebody's, a new person's mistakes. I don't like going with somebody that's brand new that, it's just, I mean, they can get their teeth cut on other properties. I mean, that's absolutely, that's totally fine. But just for my properties, my family, I feed my kids with this money. And so I want to make sure I have somebody as spot on or knows their numbers or knows how to run the business. Now, on top of that though, I do give them all of my property managers. I give them my, uh, so they have their guidelines of what they normally do. Like, you know, rent's due on the first, it's late after the third when they do the evictions and they have a whole bunch of other things that are their business process. But what I do is I look at what they already have designed for all of their clients. And I say, this is good. This is bad. This is good. This is bad. But this is how I want you to run my property. So blanket, this is what you do default to this. And so in doing that, they have an understanding of how I want my business to run. And I'm not going to have to question like, Hey, are they actually doing it right? So that's a great, right? Now, once we have, let's say we built a team or we have number one, the property manager, we have some contractors, we have some handymen and we we're getting ready and we have a couple of realtors looking around. What is, is it, is funding the next step? Is it finding the property next? What's the next step after we've already started developing the team? You've got to have the money ready, right? Because if you can't, if you find the property and don't have the funding, what use is the property? So have the money ready, depending on whatever that is. Sometimes that can be a little bit more challenging. That's something that I struggled with. Um, when I started looking at investors, there was someone I wanted to work with last year who pulled out last minute for that refi with that seller finance property. So I, I won't be working with him again, even though he has plenty of money, you know, it's just, that's not a risk that I can take, you know, so just making sure that whoever you work with or your own funding is solid and ready to go, because not only does that affect your ability to execute, it also impacts how people perceive you. You want to be a closer every time you get to the table. You want your agent to know, you want your property manager to know if they bring you something, you say, yeah, I can do it, that you actually will do it. And you will do, and some, I mean, sometimes deals fall through. I had a quadplex fall through, but that did not mean that I did not yeah. Anyway, let me phrase that easier. I, <laughs> I, called, <laughs> I called every bank in that town trying to find someone who would finance it. And I, like, it just, like, I could not make it work. I was, I was running headfirst into a brick wall and they need to know that if you say you're going to do it, you're going to do everything in your power to make it happen. You know? So there's no way that you can go get a property or get one under contract or try to get one under contract or have someone looking and not, not have the money. Can you imagine that conversation? Sorry, I don't have any money right now after you've been looking for weeks. And people like us who are, we're go-getters. We're going to, we're going to do our everything we can to get this deal to go through, but sometimes it just will. But I love your thought that we want to be seen as buyers, as investors, as we get the deal done. If we have a deal come to us, especially I love, I don't know how we haven't actually talked about this, but I personally love wholesalers. They're some of my favorite people to work with because they work so hard. And I wake up in the morning, I'm drinking my coffee and I open up my email of all a list of properties that they worked hard to get. They're sending it to me. Here's the property. I'm like, well, shoot, I'm getting this like 10% or 15% below market value. I'm paying you like two or $3,000. Shoot, that's a good deal. Let's go ahead and jump yeah. or something like that. I, yeah. I just, I love wholesalers and I love working with people. So if we're going to be finding properties, do you have any tips or any ideas other than like, you know, MLS or Zillow, any other tips that we can do to find good properties? I think it depends on your market. So in Indianapolis, we have like a Facebook group for out-of-state investors that I'm still a part of, even though now I'm in state. And um, we do have like people who, like local vendors and stuff. And that's actually how I found my last deal was through this like Facebook group, you know, and it's just trying to figure out who the people are who bring in the most volume. And unfortunately, sometimes 
you have to measure that with like how big their buyers list is because I mean some of the biggest guys I can't really compete with compete with on their buyers list because they will have people come in from California who have like hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and they can afford to put like that three grand down uh, non-refundable deposit buy it sight unseen. I'm, I'm still working around the clock for my finance job, supporting myself with my W-2 income. Like I can't throw three grand at this property, three grand at that property, not execute or buy one and then find like knob and tube wiring or some weird electrical stuff going on. You know, like I can't afford those kinds of mistakes with the size of my portfolio right now, you know? So maybe at some point I can, but if I work with the smaller guys, I can build that relationship with them. And, um, work with them so that maybe I get a little more time to get financing. Maybe I can actually get that inspection, you know, because they know that I'll execute time and again, and they don't have quite that list to, to pull from. So, yeah. And you're, what you said was something that is really interesting because if somebody is a doctor or a lawyer, they usually have lots of taxable income. They want to park that somewhere. They're not investors like us where we're passive income. We're investing for cash flow because that's what we feed our family on. They're like, shoot, I'm going to actually, even though I'm going to lose like a hundred dollars a month on this property in passive income, I'm going to be saving thousands of dollars a year in taxes. So shoot, I'll just park my money here. So it's hard. Like you're, I completely understand. It's hard to compete. I'll raise you one. So like two years ago when I was in Boston, um, that's when like the Chinese investors were just buying everything in sight. That was why I knew I couldn't invest in Boston. You know, everything was going for like tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars over asking, depending on the property size. It was huge. And a lot of these properties were older. They definitely had massive maintenance issues, but they were buying them sight unseen. And why? Because they have, they had the currency risk, like that they were hedging hens. It didn't matter if it lost actual cash. There were, there were other reasons that they were investing, you know? So the same thing goes in this, in any other market. You have to understand why other people are investing and how you can compete with that. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Now, I want to also touch on the numbers game. Like the more offers you put in, eventually you're going to get one. Tell me about what, what are your thoughts about? Uh, should we put in just one offer a month? When we say hey, it's a great deal, let's put an offer in now. Should we put more offerings? And what? How do we make sure that the numbers kind of work in our favor to eventually get a good deal? Um, I think I think it's harder to find good deals. So if you find one, put an offer in ASAP. <laughs> you know, and if you if you are in a predicament where you need to get the financing for an extra one. Try try to figure that out. Do everything you can to figure that out. Um, friends, family, fools, whoever, <laughs> you know, like try to find some help or maybe take on a partner. But I think in this market, it's so competitive that it's hard to find good deals. You shouldn't stop yourself because it's like, oh, what if this one goes through? Well, you'll find out in two days like or a day, you know, just you have to it's you just have to keep throwing those darts until until it sticks and throwing good darts at a good board, <laughs> not just any. Yeah. Yeah, because you will not get 100% of the deals you do not put offers in. Like you literally won't get it because you didn't put an offer in. So you just have to put an offer in. And on top of that, here's what I always try to tell all my students is you absolutely do not or should not, or I will say, you know, you're disowned as a student if you buy bad deals. We don't buy bad deals just because, oh, we found, we got one. No, 
we wait until we have a good deal. And one thing that, because you mentioned your second um, second property was like a, a, an investor and he had two different properties together and we're bundling them together. Usually when students come to me, they'll say, hey, there's one investor who has like six properties. They're all bundled together. And I always tell them, analyze every single property. We don't buy five good properties for a lemon, a bad, bad property, That'll even if you. we're getting good deal. Exactly. We only buy good properties. And I think one thing I might add to that is like, what is your definition of good, right? Because I've talked to a lot of investors, especially recently, who can't tell me why it's a good deal or a bad deal. Like I I described it to someone earlier this morning as peeling off the layers of an onion, you know? So like it might work in the numbers, but what are the economics? Like there are places, there are people going to like turnkeys and they're interested in Indianapolis, but then they end up buying one an hour outside of Indianapolis because that's the only place a turnkey company can make it work, you know? So okay, the numbers look okay, but then what are the other aspects of this? And why are they selling it at this price? And why are they selling it here versus there? Like you have to keep pulling that back in order to determine what is actually a good deal. There's so many aspects and you ha- you just, you have to do that work. Otherwise it is not worth it. You will probably lose your money. Wholeheartedly agree. You're, you're absolutely spot on. Now, how do we know? Cause we have to know that criteria. Um, do we, have to look at every single property and continue to be looking, analyzing properties in the area so that when one comes on the market, hey, that, that, I know what a good deal looks like. I could jump on this one. Or should we just like pull up every, you know, every other month and say, let me look for a property there. Now, like, what are your thoughts about constantly looking versus randomly looking? I think you're leading me with your questions a little bit. <laughs> are you trying to make a point? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm teasing. So, I mean, I looked at hundreds before buying my first one and not because I couldn't pull the trigger, but because I didn't know exactly what was a good deal at first, because it's also comparative to what else is going on, right? So like, if I can find something in a good area now, that's 1% and change. That's a good deal, depending when you can't find anything else, you know, so you need to be able to compare to the other things in addition to comparing to your own needs. And the only way you can do that is by having your pulse on the temp of the market, which means consistently analyzing, especially in this, in these days, if you look like every six weeks, our lives have been turned upside down in the last six weeks. What you knew in January no longer holds. (laughs) So it is like (laughs) just everything's been wiped clean. So you need to like be on top of it. That's the only way you can stay sharp. So I bought those five and then I closed on the last door, like September, October. I didn't buy the next one until the next July when I moved here. And I was so rusty. I'd already closed on five doors and I'd done it in a much harder way, doing it, never, never setting foot on them. Like I'd already been in this house the year before because I knew the owner. It was a long story. And like, I knew this house, but I was like struggling with like my analysis because it had been time had passed, you know? So like you definitely need to stay sharp in order to like be able to like really execute. It becomes easier. Executing sometimes is hard, especially for new investors, because there's, there's a lot of triggers you have to pull. But if you're, if you keep putting, if you keep stepping up and keep putting yourself out there, then it gets easier to pull those triggers time after time. Cause you're like, I've been here. I've done this. I've almost pulled the trigger. This is just a small inch forward. Yeah. I love that idea. I want to switch a little bit of gears to We've been talking a lot about long-term rentals. Mm -hmm. Now, I am not an Airbnb expert at all. And especially (laughs) right now, well, if you think about what's going on right now where people don't travel, they're locked in their houses. And I see there are some people that do the rental arbitrage where basically they're leasing somebody else's house 
putting furniture in and then having an Airbnb and they're turning over Airbnb people, but they're literally having to close down. They're stuck for the leases. They have all the furniture, but nobody's traveling. They have all these expenses. Now that's a whole different model, which we're not talking about. You own these houses. So we're still investors. It's just short-term versus long-term. So we're not talking about rental arbitrage, but tell me a little bit about, because I mean, just teach me, what are your thoughts about short-term versus long-term rental properties? So I converted my smallest unit in that first property that I bought um, into a short-term rental last October. And I think first things first with short-term rentals, I thought this back then, and now this this just like supports my theory, um, have more than one exit strategy. If it's just a short-term rental, don't do it. Like if you can only make it work as a short-term rental, I should say, don't do it. And mm. um, I'm, I'm also, I'm not a fan of the arbitrage. I'm a fan of paying, of building wealth, you know, by paying down that mortgage. We're long-term people. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And so like have, have both of those, make sure you're paid, you're building for the long-term, you have an exit strategy. And then also the way I looked at it is like, what kind of bar did I have in order for this to be successful? So like my small, it was a small unit, one bedroom, one bathroom, split level carriage house, maybe like 400 square feet. It, if we look at the mechanics of that tenant, it's hard to make that profitable. It wasn't downtown. It's a more, I'll be getting a more transient tenant. So like the families that we love to move in, that's because they don't leave <laughs> because it is so hard to pack up all your kids and all of their stuff and go to another place to another <laughs> rental, right? Whereas if you have like one person who's like a professional with a couch and like a TV and they get bored and they're like, oh, I want to go somewhere more exciting, do something new. I want to move from Boston to Indianapolis. Let me just go <laughs> ahead and do that. <laughs> okay. Point taken. <laughs> do not rent to myself. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, so, and then when that happens, if you have a property manager, then you have to pay a new leasing fee every year. You have vacancy and turnover costs. What are the biggest cost killers in our business? Vacancy and turnover. This is set up to barely, maybe make a little money, not a ton. This is not, this is not going to make me rich, right? This one unit, small unit that I have. And then also every decision that I made in these last two years in terms of what I bought was through the lens of we are going to have a correction how do I mitigate against that risk? Right. And so, so that's why I bought in higher class areas because I knew if I went to the C areas, those guys would have more trouble once the manufacturing plant shut down like they are now, once things start happening and they don't have those savings. And it was, so it was just going to be rough. But with this rental, if there's a recession coming, it's one bedroom, one bathroom. You look at the three bedroom, two bathroom, whatever Airbnbs that go for like 500 bucks a month. That is great during boom times. Boom times were not going to last by the time I started. And they were definitely not going to last when I started last year. You know, I had other friends who were like, Hey, turn the other side to, I had like two bedroom, one bathroom on that same property. And they're like, turn that to an Airbnb too. And I was like, no, <laughs> not happening. You know, so um, the bar for for me was very low, and then just looking at like I only had to make four hundred fifty, essentially five hundred bucks a month in order to be more successful than an than a long term rental. And if I'm renting every night, and I look at the other Airbnbs in the area, and like the cheapest is like forty fifty bucks if I want to compete on price and go on go out fifty bucks a night, and I look at average occupancy in that area, average occupancy sixty percent you can do the math. What's, what's 40 bucks or even 35 bucks a night at 50% occupancy. It's probably still more profitable than a long-term rental. Like, so if I completely suck at this, 
I probably still make some money, but I don't suck. So <laughs> mostly. <laughs> but I, I do absolutely want to make sure everybody understands that you have a great point is having not necessarily, you say you were to use the word extra strategy. It could also just be how you make money from that property. Yes. I mean, you can have yes. many, mm-hmm. yeah, many different ways. And one of them could be a short-term rental property. Like one of my properties in Arizona, I'd love to turn it into a short-term rental property whenever whenever I, you know, the tenants move out and everything, I'd be totally fine to do that just to try it out. But when you think about Airbnb or VRBO or these short-term sites, websites that, you know, put, you know, a a renter and a one-day renter versus versus long-term, when they put that in there, that's really in the boom cycles. Like when people aren't moving, like right now, people are literally locked down. If they're not going anywhere, they're not going to rent. And so I love how you're, you have an idea like you can have options. And that's something I just love is real estate gives you so many options if you do the business right. So let's jump into, I want to ask you, what is some, what of your bit of advice that you can give to anybody who is saying, you know what I want, I'm going to get started. I know I'm already going to get started. I'm also, I know my goal. I know the vision of what I want to do. I like what Sunitha has been talking about building wealth and, and having long-term wealth and eventually being successful and employed. What is any bit of advice that we should look at to get started? You've already given us great stuff, but is there anything else that we could be looking at? I mean, I think there's, there are a few things. One is obviously educating yourself, making sure you know what you're doing Two, especially in this environment that we're living in be ready for the worst case scenario. Can you handle that? What does that look like? You know, and then three is build your network. And that's not just like your core four, your property manager, your agent that is made up of other investors who are legitimately, they're not just like your acquaintances. They are your legitimate friends. Like they are the people you can call on when everything's hitting the fan and you can't figure it out because calling another investor who is not actually your friend when you're like panicked because of X, Y, and Z, that's not going to go so well. But like, you really have to work to build your network and surround yourself with like-minded people that is going to make all the difference in the world. That's great. I love that idea. And I know that my business, as I started telling more people that I was an investor and especially starting Master Passive Income now, like lots and lots of people know that I'm an investor. Like I'm shouting it to everybody. I'm an investor. So many more deals come so much more money comes to me. Like, Hey, can you, can I invest through you and things like I have to turn down opportunities just because there's so many. And so the more people that I work with, more people I talk to, more people I network with, the better things get. So I love that. That's fantastic. So from there, what is one little bit of advice that you would give your younger self? Like, you know, younger Sunitha back in, I don't know, like let's say 20 years old or, or 18 years old, any bit of advice that you oh. would, it could be business, could be life or anything like that. Start investing earlier. Okay. So you want to hear a story, right? So I grew up in Florida. I moved to Boston for undergrad, I think like 2010. Think about where the Florida market was around then, you know, and I actually, I've always been obsessed with houses. I wanted to buy a house before I got accepted to college up there. And I actually wanted to buy, I was living in this really cute townhouse. It was like 800 square feet, two bedroom, one bathroom. I was paying 850 a month, the going rate. Townhouses in that area were selling for $40,000 and they were nice. They were, and they had been built like, Four years before, we're selling at 100K and the market just like tanked, right? And so I ch- actually tried to go get financing to buy one. And I had like $20,000 saved up at that point and the bank would have financed it. And I didn't take the time to understand the mechanics. I couldn't understand like numbers or anything. Like I was just, I had no idea what was going on. And I really wish I'd taken the time to get like a little bit more like grit in my spine and been like, 
there's an opportunity here. But I did not, I did not even see it as an opportunity. I didn't even know what was happening. Even if I just bought that one condo, like life would be different. <laughs> Absolutely. And look at how much, and those are probably going for at least a hundred, 150 now, if not more, oh, totally. which would be great. And I'm getting questions all the time right now from basically anybody reached out to me um, asking the question, is now the right time to invest or should I wait? And what I always tell them is, well, basically, yes, yes to both. Is now the right time? Yes. Is it right time to wait? Yes. And the reason why I say it's both is if you're buying the right deal, that's making you passive income, that's you're not over leveraging, you're not going to kill yourself. Because like I said, I started investing in 2006, like when it was still taken off. Uh, I started investing then I was still making money all through the crash. So if you're doing the business right, you absolutely can. And if you're going to invest in something like a $500,000 house, that's probably not the best idea. Because imagine if there was a crash, not saying there will, but if there was a crash where it cuts in half, so a $500,000 house is now $250,000, but a $100,000 house is now $50,000. So instead of losing $250,000, you're losing fifty, dollars or you know what I mean? So it's there's different ways to invest and there's different ideas. But the a big thing that you said was you educated yourself or sorry, you, you wish you would got more education and now you have education. Whereas back then it was really a lot more difficult. And another reason why I tell people right now is the best time to start investing is you need to start educating yourself now because if and when there is a crash, because you're thinking there is one, you don't want to educate yourself in the bottom of the crash when you're starting to learn and you're going to miss the entire run up. You want to educate yourself now so that when it does correct, when it does come down, you're like, those are great deals. It's half off. Let me buy them right now. I've already had the network. I already have the money fund. I already have the business set up. I already have everything ready. Now I could jump into it. What do you think? That's exactly. I was waiting for a pause so that I could say exactly that. So like people have been telling me since I started, Hey, wait, there's going to be a crash. Okay, great. If I waited, I would probably have X amount of dollars to, to spend, but I'd be doing everything as a brand new investor. And I wouldn't have the reputation or the networks that I've worked to build today. You know, so like now I have the lenders, now I have the investors, I have friends who have the rehab team, I know the wholesalers, I've worked with all of them, they know I'll execute. So when I'm in a position where I can find deals, I might not have the cash, but I can find people who have the cash now, because I have the experience. And so and now I know how to make it successful, because like the first one or two you do, you're kind of like, operating on theory, (laughs) you know, and you're like, Oh, my God, I think this is okay. You don't want to be saying, oh, I think this is okay. And what could arguably be the best investment period in like our lifetime? Like we don't know what's going to turn out, but I don't think things are going to be good with the way with the way the markets are looking in terms of like lending, et cetera. You don't know, but you want to be prepared. You don't want to sit back in what year are we? 2020? You don't want to sit back in 2026. <laughs> I always have you're you're not nearly as old as I am. I can't believe you're thinking. What year is I do stuff like that all the time. The simple things I forget. Um, but you don't want to be looking back at 2026 going, my life is not that different. And now we're out of the recession or the correction, whatever we had. And I won't have I another it. opportunity for another seven to 10 years. You don't want, like, you don't want that to be you. So no, and find the numbers make it work. Your apps. I love everything that you're saying. I completely wholeheartedly agree. I am so excited for when the prices get dropped in half or they, I don't want to say recession because it's going to hurt lots and lots of people. people. Yeah. 
people that are hugely over leveraged, the people that don't do the business like I'm doing, and they might lose their shirt. And I'll be there and say, yeah, I'll take that property half off. Yeah, please. So I have plenty of cash waiting. Plus I have the knowledge. Plus I have the experience and the network, just like everything you said, that I'm excited for when there is something that is going to change. And everybody who has like you, like me, who have already have experience, we've already learned the way we like to do the business, the, our business model, we can jump on those things. So man, that's great. Okay. So Sanitha, last thing is what is one nonfiction book that you would say is a really, really good book that we should look at and read? So one book that I really like um, is on emotional intelligence written by the Harvard Business Review. So I think that is really key just for life, you know, um, and especially in real estate, because this is all about understanding people. This is not about houses. It's about humans and it's about working well with people, building those relationships. And it's not just like networking stiffly in a suit. It's about actually building true bonds with other people so that you can, everyone can help each other be successful. And you can only do that if you are like empathetic, if you are able to self-regulate, if you're able to like master these or I mean, who can actually master? But if you're able to be strong, these different areas of like emotional intelligence and dealing with people, that's like, they say EQ goes far, emotional quotient goes far higher, takes you far higher than IQ. And I'm a firm believer in that, especially in, you don't need to be a genius to run the numbers. You need to be smart enough, but the people who know people and can make like the deals happen with the other people, I think those are the ones who will, who will truly get ahead. So that is number one. And the other one, well, I have like a bunch, but um, another one that I really like is Tribe of Mentors by Tim Ferriss, because like I really like exposure to successful people is how we can learn how they think. It's not necessarily what they do, but it's the thought process that gets them there. That's what makes them successful. So being able to like have some sort of access to a ton of people in a ton of different industry industries who have set themselves apart and to to see what kinds of things that they prioritize in their lives and in their business and whatever like i think that's invaluable so that those are like probably two of my favorites love it i love those those are great i completely agree the more people that uh well one like i said earlier the more people that i help the better my life is financially emotionally all that sort of stuff but the more that i'm actually caring for the other person, not just like, how can I make money? How can I you know, no, serve you to make money? Yeah, no, no. Literally caring for people and having that emotional quote. And I think you're absolutely right. I love that. Okay, Matt, Sunitha, you give us so much great insights. I, I know I've learned plenty. I know everybody else is gonna, has learned a lot. Listen to this. I know people are going to want to reach out to you. How can they find you? How can they reach out to you and talk to you about everything that you're doing? So I have a website and um, an Instagram handle, of course. <laughs> so my Instagram handle is Griffix Property Group. It's G-R-I-F-F-I-X Property Group. And then my website goes by the same name. So GriffixPropertyGroup.com. And then at the they can DM me or um, there are places to shoot me a message on my website. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Sunitha, thank you so much for being on the Master Passive Income Show. You give us great, great insight. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this. See, I told you, you were going to get so much great insights out of everything that Sunitha has done, all of her business, and even just wisdom in general, like how she views life, how she likes to help people and serve people. And that's what gravitated toward me towards her when we met was she was very, very helpful, just like how I try to be. I try to be as helpful as possible to as many people as possible. And her and I just hit it off really, really well. She's fantastic. She's out of Indianapolis. Reach out to her. But you guys are so great. I want to give you 
my free real estate investing course. Text the word rental to 33777. Rental to 33777 so I can get you my free real estate investing course. Now, you guys are fantastic. I want you to not let anything stop you from investing in real estate. This is something you need to do. Remember, the best time to start investing was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. Get started today. Get your education. And remember, I have my Real Estate Wealth Builders membership where I am doing group coaching. I have all my courses, all my five courses in there. I want you to be a part of that as well. So go to Master Passive Income at the top. There's a link in there. You'll find it. There's a link in there. Go to the Real Estate Coaching section and you'll learn all about that. But you guys are fantastic. Thank you again for being here on the Master Passive Income Show. We'll see you next week.